Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new Ultra Micro Diameter Injection Arrows. Injection utilizes the new Deep Six standard for more big game penetration than ever before. Learn more about the injection today at www.eastonarchery.com. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, editor Christian Berg. All right, welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we're glad that you've taken some time to be with us today for an awesome show focused on the undisputed champion number one big game hunting species in North America, uh, none other than the white-tailed deer. And uh, always great to talk whitetails, and always great to talk with today's guest, who, in addition to being a super passionate whitetail hunter, is uh, one of the leaders of the deer hunting community in North America. That is none other than Mr. Nick Pinizzato uh, from the National Deer Alliance. Nick, thanks so much for being with us today on Bowhunting Radio. Thank you very much for having me, Christian, and uh, really looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, uh, Nick, I guess first and foremost, uh, congratulations are in order. Uh, You're no stranger to the hunting community. Uh, You had been uh, with the U.S. Sportsman's Alliance for, uh, I think, a number of years and advocating for outdoorsmen uh, in that position. And uh, a few months ago, were brought on as the president and CEO at the National Deer Alliance. So congratulations to you. Uh, I think you've got your work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah, I definitely do. And, uh, yeah, you're right. I, I was with the Sportsman's Alliance for a while, um, you know, working on all broad broad issues that impact sportsmen across the country. And I certainly loved what I was doing there. But at the end of the day, I, I could never deny the fact that the, the big uh, biggest part of my heart was dedicated to, to deer and deer hunting. Um, you know, everybody refers, has referred to me as the deer guy for a long time. And I just, as I said, back when I was talking to them about the job, I said, you know, love makes you do crazy things sometimes. And like you said, the work, the work is certainly cut out for me and the deer Alliance. But I think when you, you know, really love these animals the way that I do, um, I, I just see it as a, as a need and a real opportunity. So it is, it is a big job that I'm looking forward to, to diving in and, and making it happen. Yeah, and just a little bit before we dive into the NDA and the issues facing deer and deer hunting, um, just to establish your bona fides for our audience, you know, I want people to know that you're one of us. And Nick, particularly, uh, I say he's one of us for myself because Nick is a is a Pennsylvania boy, which of course is where I live. And I won't hold it against you that you live in uh, Ohio now, but uh, you are certainly a, a dyed-in-the-wool traditional deer hunter. Uh, you grew up with the sport, and uh, you're a heck of a deer uh, bow hunter too. As a matter of fact, I just purchased. Uh, an article from Nick because he really stuck with it last winter and killed a great buck in the late season in Ohio and we'll be featuring that hunt in Peterson's bow hunting sometime uh, late this summer or early fall. Why don't you just tell me a little bit Nick quick uh, about you know your hunting heritage personally particularly in bow hunting and then just give people a little tease on on your upcoming uh, hunt story in Peterson's bow hunting. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, as you had mentioned, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and, and there is 
arguably no bigger deer state, deer hunting state than Pennsylvania. Especially when you look at the number of hunters there are per square mile, you don't have to look very far to see the next guy. But um, I grew up with that heritage. I was very lucky and fortunate to grow up in a family that hunted. I was very fortunate to have a father to teach me and a brother to hunt with and an uncle and a lot of friends. And frankly, uh, when I, where I grew up in very rural western Pennsylvania, I always found it odd when I ran into somebody that didn't hunt because I just assumed that's what everybody did. And then, of course, you get out into the big world and you find out that it's actually only about 5 to 7% of us that hunt. So, uh, so that way I came to it very naturally. But I just I kind of took it to another level, I guess, just on a, you know, personally because I, I truly just fell in love with these animals. Um, wanting to know everything I possibly could know about them, um, did a lot of personal study, um, got very involved with deer organizations and deer issues at a young age, and then just frankly have been very, very fortunate to have had my career lead in this direction. And I, I just I think about and I tell this story a lot when I'm you know speaking at various places. I just I know what what deer have done for me in my life and and probably kept me out of a lot of trouble and, and steered me in some really good directions. And I, I just see it as a wonderful responsibility to be in a position where I can help make sure that happens uh, for a lot of other people as well, because I don't, I don't know where I would be today if it wasn't for what deer have done for me. And I, I just, I love the animals. And frankly, I also really love pursuing them and love chasing them. And that doesn't necessarily mean getting. Um, I, I have had some success, and I appreciate your compliments. Um, but it's because I work so hard at, I, I actually think I'm a terrible hunter, but I, what, I'm not, what I am very good at is not giving up and working very hard. And I work very hard at it, and I spend a lot of hours in the woods just being around these animals. And for me, every hunt is successful when you just get a chance to observe them, be around them, learn from them, be outwitted by them constantly. Uh, that is, that's a really cool thing to me. And I just think, um, like I said, being out there for me is the real reward. And this year I had I definitely got the most out of my hunting license in Ohio because uh, I put several months in on a particular deer that I was after that uh, your folks will get to read about here in, in an upcoming issue. But a uh, deer that I called Curfew, and I called him that deer because he seemed to always show up late in the season. I, so I knew this deer for a couple years, and this year he didn't show up until late October. Uh, so I gave him the nickname Curfew and hunted him for several months, and I uh, had some close encounters with him, but didn't actually get a chance to take him until the 15th of January, which is a very tough time to be out there. And I, trust me when I tell you, I was completely on fumes and, and pretty much worn out, but luckily had enough energy to stick with it and, and take a magnificent older deer. So uh, I was appreciative of the opportunity to write that for you, and I hope people enjoy reading about it. But at the end of the day, for me, I, you know, I immediately had sa sadness after I shot the deer because I just, I really loved the deer. I got to know him, and I expected to see him and see his pictures on camera. So for me, it's much more than just going out and, and killing a big animal. It's just the relationship that you have, the lessons that you learn, and I'm hoping that the NDA can, can preserve those opportunities for, for all of us. Absolutely, you know, and that's one of the beauties of deer hunting, too. You know, it's funny, I was listening to you you know, talk and, and thinking about your story that you sent in to me recently and, and all the 
the months and the hours and the, the early mornings and the cold sets on stand and the effort that you put into taking that deer. And, and I was just kind of thinking about my own hunt that I had in Iowa this past fall where I only had to hunt for four hours to kill a great buck. And I mean, that's hunting, that's bow hunting. I mean, it can, it can happen in an instant or it can feel sometimes like it's never going to happen. And, and the experience is so varied and, and and I think that's what kind of keeps us coming back for a lifetime as you talked about you know a lifelong heritage in this sport because no two hunts are the same no two deer are exactly the same and on any given day it's it's a completely blank page and you got to write a new script so uh it's an awesome game my friend and I'm glad that we have you as an advocate on our behalf so with that let's jump into the National Deer Alliance um for those who are listening who aren't familiar with the NDA, which I'm going to guess is a few because you are a relatively new group, talk to me about what the NDA is and where it came from. Yeah, so we are we're really, really new. Actually, it was in two, four, 2014, uh, Quality Deer Management Association held a, a really important meeting for deer, and it was the North American Deer Summit. I uh, had it out in Missouri, brought in. Uh, some of the best deer people in the country, and just threw out a conversation about why, you know, what what can we do for deer on a broader scale, and how can we attract more deer hunters to joining organizations, because they knew at that time that less than, you know, while 83% of all people that hunt identify themselves as deer hunters, less than 1% of those people actually join a deer hunting organization or really participate in, in protecting deer, so, or protecting the sport. So, they had the big discussion at the Deer Summit, and out of that came the idea that, well, you know, it's amazing, even though this is by far the most hunted species, like you indicated at the beginning of the show, there is no national deer organization or one sort of umbrella deer organization to look after our sport and to look after deer and to speak for all deer hunters. So that then eventually led to the creation of a board of directors uh, almost two years later, and then that board of directors was, was seated in May of last year. The organization became incorporated, and then they set out at the second Deer Summit uh, back in, in 2015 in Louisville, Kentucky. Their charge then was to hire the first CEO of the organization and get some dollars in so that we could actually get moving forward. Uh, ironically, um, my focus was trying to help them get a good person for the job at that time, um, I didn't know how I fit into the mix, but then ultimately I find myself in the job as the first CEO. So that's sort of the the brief history of how it got started. And uh, now that the charge is to get out there and get the excitement going and get people to join us and actually start working on issues that really matter to deer and deer hunters because, um, you know, it's, arguably this, this isn't sort of the good old days of deer hunting, and we're hoping that we can we can bring some of that back by some of the things that we'll work on. Sure. So, you know, what are what are the the big issues facing deer? I know, I mean, I guess I'd I'd like to sort of start out with with deer populations overall. I mean, that's something that we uh we hear an awful lot about. Um we touch on that in the magazine fairly regularly in uh in our whitetails column. Uh you know, Dr. Grant Woods writes about that. Uh and, and we know that in various areas of the country 
for various reasons, the uh, the deer population doesn't seem to be uh, as robust as it might have been, uh, you know, some years ago. Uh, what's the current state of the deer population uh, in North America, Nick? And and what do you think uh, needs to be done uh, to maybe reverse some of those declining trends? Yeah, and that's a that's a great great question. And I know you guys talk about that a lot, and, and it's it's a big conversation in the in the deer hunting circles for sure. Um, well, clearly the numbers don't lie. If you look, especially across the Midwest, uh, the harvest numbers have been down. There's no question about that. And, you know, a lot of that, there's, some things are easy to point to. Um, you know, in some areas, frankly, it's as simple as huge EHD outbreak killing off in, in some localities, 70, 70% of the population or even more in some areas. That, that's, that's been a big issue. We're not going to blame it all on disease for sure. Uh, that's just one factor. I mean, other other factors, uh, there were a lot of steps taken by state agencies to try to reduce deer herds because the herds were, frankly, too high, um, having a real heavy impact on the quality of our forests, the amount of food that's out there for deer, the amount of cover. Uh, deer very quickly will eat themselves out of house and home, and I think some of that was going on, and I think st- uh, states took some pretty big steps to cut back on deer numbers. Um, predators, predators have been a very, uh, you know, more talked about issue now than ever, at least in my history as a hunter, than I can ever remember. And if you think about it, when you, you lose things like, uh, you know, millions of acres in the conservation reserve programs, and now you've got less places for deer to hide, you have more predators than you've ever had, you know, there, it makes it easier for them to find fawns, you know, they're taking a bigger chunk, I think, out of the pie. Um, you know, all of these factors are things that, that go against deer numbers. Now, that being said, that's not to say that necessarily the things that states did, for example, to, to reduce the herds were necessarily a bad thing. And I think what you're seeing now is I think you're seeing a little bit of a um, sort of a, a reset, if you will, where things are starting to settle into more of a, a better position in terms of population. I just, just read literally this morning about how Delaware, for example, uh, which isn't a state you think about, a lot for, for deer hunting, but their numbers actually were up this year. My state of Ohio, where I'm at, were up again this year. So I think we have to remember that we can't look at any one, uh, two, or even handful of seasons and say that we necessarily have a problem. I think you have to look at it almost in the window of a decade and say, well, what are, what are the numbers trending at and what do they look like? Well, they definitely were trending down, you know, for most of the last decade, but I'm, I'm actually feeling pretty good about what I'm seeing now, and I think we're going to start trending a little bit back the other way. And, you know, Christian, I think we have to be honest with ourselves, too. I mean, I don't think it's out of the, or unrealistic to say that maybe deer populations were higher than they should have been back in the, what we consider the heyday, uh, you know, uh, you know, seven or eight years ago where the harvest numbers were really high uh, because, you know, there, there were an awful lot of deer out there and there were a lot of issues. So I think sportsmen have to sort of understand where that sweet spot is and understand that for the long-term health of deer, you know, we have to manage them. There may be ebbs and flows, but ultimately, over the long term, those are the numbers we have to see stable. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned, obviously, the state agencies and various things that were done. Um, you know, of course, that's always a controversial issue, uh, state by state. Uh, you know, here in Pennsylvania, as you well know, uh, things that the, the Game Commission does aren't, aren't always 
the most popular, or probably more accurately to say almost never the most popular. Uh, it doesn't tend to be the most beloved uh, government agency in, in the Commonwealth. Uh, I think that's probably true to some extent throughout the country. Uh, wildlife agencies don't always uh, uh, get a very good rap uh, from their constituents. What is the role that the National Deer Alliance will be playing in terms of uh, you know, working with the agencies to address some of those management concerns that you touched on and and how you know the voice of the deer hunter will be represented in the things that you guys are going to do i think the biggest role we can play there is to be a really a, a third party that can help bring everybody together I, I mean i feel i mean you mentioned pennsylvania and i'll talk about it as well because i understand it very clearly you know i feel badly a lot of times for the the people at the game commission who are working really hard to try to do the best thing they can for deer and for hunters, and that is it's almost a, a job that you can't win at, you know. Um, and they have done some really good things and some things that haven't worked, and I think they're doing their best. And I think, you know, ultimately we need to find ways to work together. We need to have, find ways for the hunter to understand better where some of these things come from, uh, maybe uh, help interpret some of the science behind them. And that's one of the great things I think about the, the National Deer Alliance, and that is, we have a very simple litmus test, and that is if something is good for deer and it's good for deer hunting, then we're absolutely going to support it. If it's not good for deer or deer hunting, then we're going to have to be there to, to say that it's not good and we're going to have to stand behind it. And we're going to use science as our guide. And in a lot of cases, you know, I think it's probably going to be you know, something that hunters will get behind and get excited about, but in some cases it might not be. And I think just as a hunting community, um, We'll do our part to help the hunting community, I think, better understand where some of these things are coming from, not necessarily just as an advocate for an agency, but just for an advocate for good deer management. And I think we'll also have meetings, you know, with state agencies, and some of these meetings might be behind closed doors where we can actually get at the heart of some of these issues. And the biggest thing is to make sure that politics don't get in the, uh, start playing a role in deer management because when politics get involved and we go away from the science, then the deer lose and the hunters lose and the industry loses. And that's the one thing we absolutely want to avoid. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you, you hear, you talk about the politics and, and if you're in deer hunting circles for any length of time, you hear a lot of conspiracy theories out there. You know, the, the insurance companies are, telling these agencies, you know, how many more deer need to be killed or the forestry and timber interests are telling them uh, or, you know, environmental groups that care more about, you know, wildflowers and songbirds than deer or hunting are telling them what to do. How much of that do you think is for real, Nick? And, you know, and, and is there really, you know, a lot of sinister opposition trying to undermine uh, you know, our hunting heritage, uh, should we be that worried about that as deer hunters? I think we should be way more worried about an, an anti-hunting community, uh, groups that seek to divide us and get us fighting amongst each other. I'm talking about groups like the Humane Society of the United States, uh, a group that I fought tooth and nail against in my last job. Uh, that's what the real concern should be, I think, for deer hunters. Uh, you know, some I hear, I hear the very far-fetched, ideas that, that some hunters have for why things uh, may not be going the way that they like, and I hear some other things that might have some truth to them. It's just kind of all across the board. Um, but I think as a, as a hunting community in general, we need to be more focused on the real enemy 
and the real enemy is not your state wildlife agency. Um, they need wildlife too, you know, and, and happy hunters for them to keep their jobs. But there definitely are people that are out there, and they're not they're not going to say for you know because a lot of times people say, well, I'm not worried about it as a deer hunter because they're not coming after deer hunting, and I would just argue that they're very good at coming at it from different directions, and that is by not letting you hunt predators, for example, or um, trying to to put stiffer regulations on your public lands to make it more difficult for you to hunt, or taking away lead ammunition, or all of these different things. That's how they stop you from deer hunting. So that's the bigger concern to me. I think otherwise, though, we need to find a way to come together as a, as a deer hunting community and a deer industry and state agencies, and I, I'm really hopeful that we can play that role. Yeah, great. Um, let's talk about another thing that's kind of a, not good for are the deer hunting community you know on the one side we've got the enemies from without uh you know the anti-hunting groups uh on the other hand we've got the enemies from within and by that i mean uh poachers you know it seems like you know here we're coming you know it's almost spring so it's been a couple months over the winter you know the, the last fall's hunting season i'm still seeing stories come out about big deer that were taken illegally this past deer season and you know that's just a constant theme and we see it unfortunately every year uh, a number of really tremendous bucks that are essentially stolen from the rest of us by you know dishonest folks uh, within our ranks what uh, what is the NDA's you know uh, mission if you will and vis-a-vis poaching and and what might be done you know to sort of address that from from within the deer hunting community yeah and i think that the key thing there is is that you know and as, as you know and everyone listening understands law-abiding hunters don't like poachers any more than people that don't hunt uh you know none of us stand for it. in fact we, we may even become more angry because like you said they, they take an animal out of the resource that uh that we pursue and uh you know, no one wants to find out that the, the deer that they've been after trying to, to hunt legally was, was shot by someone, you know, in the middle of the night with a spotlight. So, um, you know, the first thing is we need to we need to continue to educate the non-hunters out there, which is, again, most of society, that we don't condone poaching as a hunting community. And one way we can do that is work very hard to stiffen penalties on people that are caught poaching. And unfortunately, I think poaching has, has been a side effect of the whole... Uh, sort of big antler time that we're in and, and now people know so much more about letting deer get older and, and bigger bucks and scoring you know you see everything first question is what did the deer score and that drives people unfortunately to do i think and you know unfortunate things and maybe even to a level to where they hadn't done it before so we need to make sure that whenever poachers are convicted that we're punishing them as uh, is, is to, to the fullest extent of the law and to make sure the penalties are stiff in fact just last week, we sent out an action alert to try to help get a bill passed in Missouri where they significantly or there's a bill out there to significantly up um, up the fine for people who are convicted of poaching. And that's something that we'll easily be able to get behind as, as the National Deer Alliance because we don't want those bad actors out there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another thing that you touched on there is the idea of the the focus on the size of our deer and the trophy 
quality and you know I'm not gonna lie Nick if you give me a choice of shooting two bucks and one of them's uh, a 180 and one of them's a 120 I probably am shooting that 180 a hundred times out of a hundred I I'm a fan of big bucks and I like to to travel to places you know like the Midwest or Canada or Kentucky where my chances of seeing and possibly taking a big buck are you know relatively good uh, you know versus here at home in Pennsylvania but at the same time you know I think I share some of your concerns about the you know an overly focused on that I mean I think about my own kids um, my oldest boy is 12 years old and he killed his second deer this past fall and it was a doe and two years ago he killed his first deer and it was a button buck and those were two you know really special moments in his life and in our outdoor experience together um, you know how do we how do we maintain our heritage and, and still have the coexistence of, you know, fostering the future and appreciating every hunt and every animal that's taken and honoring it the way that I think it deserves to be honored while at the same time, you know, living with this growing trophy mentality in the among, you know, deer hunters? Yeah, and I'm really, really glad you brought that up because it has become a really divisive issue in our sport, and it's unfortunate I'm, I'm like you. I, my preference is to pursue the smartest, oldest deer in the woods, and many times that equates to the deer having the best set of antlers as well. Not always necessarily, but um, but that's just how I prefer to hunt. I, I enjoy the pursuit, like I said at the outset of the show. It's just being out there and among them, and I don't I don't care if I if I fill my buck tag if I, if I don't get a deer that I'm after. Um, and I shoot lots of does in the meantime because I enjoy that as well, and I definitely like to fill the freezer. Um, you know, I think it's to each his own, and that's what we have to start learning to respect better as a hunting group. I, I really feel badly when I see, you know, on social media, for example, someone may post a picture of a small deer and immediately, you know, gets attacked by the people that think you should only shoot, you know, Boone and Crockett deer or whatever it is. I mean, I think, you know, you, as hunters, we set our own goals, and we need to do what us and focus on us and not worry about what everybody else is doing or to be selfish about it and worry because, you know, your neighbor might have shot a deer that Oh, you still there, Nick? It's not fun for anybody anymore. Um, I don't take it away from anybody who's out there hunting for the antlers of the bigger deer traveling to do it. That's how they pursue to enjoy the sport. Uh, while at the same time, uh, I, I love seeing the photos of the guys that are just smiling with the with a deer in the pack of the pickup because, you know, they went out there and they uh, pursued the animal, they got an animal, they filled the freezer, and to them it's a trophy in their mind. And that's where I'd like the sport to settle back to. I mean, we still need to appreciate the deer, but I think we need to appreciate the pursuit and just the privilege that it really is to be out there chasing these animals. And I think if, if we can, uh, you know, let the the sort of the state we're in now dissipate a little bit the whole big antler big antlers or bust environment go away i think we'll we'll probably be a lot better for it yeah and another thing you know you talk about just sort of to each his own and and, and talking about you know kids in particular i know that uh you know providing opportunities and maintaining opportunities for deer hunters is something else that the alliance is very much uh 
uh, interested in. Can you talk to me about, you know, the sorts of things, uh, programs or proposals that are out there um, or issues that are facing us, you know, in terms of the participation and opportunity standpoint, and even maybe start out by bringing me up to speed because you probably know better than I do. Like, what are our numbers as deer hunters across North America? Are we you know, for a long time, it was said that the hunting community was shrinking. Is that still going on? Where are we at, and and where do we need to go? I think the overall numbers, in, in terms of just hunters in general, has has stabilized a little bit. Um, that's a good thing. We're certainly, though, not on a big increase. Um, there are a number of reasons why we think that's happening, and there are some things being done to try to correct that a bit in terms of deer hunting numbers go. So we say there are about 14 million hunters in general across the country. and About 12 million of those are deer hunters. Um, you know, that can fluctuate a few hundred thousand here or there. But, and as I said earlier, that's 83% of all hunters or consider themselves deer hunters. So um, that's a lot of people to get out in the field and a lot of people to keep happy and a lot of people that need opportunities and places to hunt. So the, the idea, or the whole issue of hunter access is a big one for the Deer Alliance. Trying to make sure that people have a place to go because it seems pretty obvious that if, if you're a person that kind of likes deer hunting but it becomes harder and harder every year to find a place to go, and when you do find a place to go, there's also a ton of other people there too and your experience isn't good. It makes it pretty easy for you to give it up and you know, maybe pick up another hobby or do something different. So we need to find more places for people to go. So we're doing things like looking very closely at what North Dakota is doing, for an example, where they have a or a, excuse me, a program called public land or private land open open to sportsmen plots, where the state agency compensates private landowners uh, a little bit of money each year to for them to keep their land open to hunting. That's been very successful, and I don't see why that can't be replicated in other places. Making sure that our public land that we do have stays public. You, know, you probably read a lot of things in the in the news nowadays about the potential for state agencies or for excuse me for states to take over ownership of vast areas of federal land. And that can be a scary thing because if you have a state that is not as favorable to hunting, that could mean the loss of, uh, in some cases, millions of acres of opportunity. So we need to make sure that people have a place to go hunting, and that it doesn't, you know, ultimately become just a, a sport that just the elite can enjoy because it's then it doesn't matter how elite you are if you don't have enough numbers. We need the numbers. We need the 12 million to get the 13 million and 14 million and get people excited about the, the sport again and, and make sure they have a place to go. Yeah. And you talk about public lands and, and, you know, the future of those and what's going to happen with that property. And, um, you know, it's kind of a big issue right now because, of course, we're in an election year, and I guess it wouldn't be, it might be nice to you, but I don't think it would be fair of me to let you go the whole show and not try and embroil you in politics a little bit here. So, uh, you know, we've got all these candidates out there, and, and certainly conservation and, and sportsmen's issues and, and public lands are, are a big uh, issue, you know, on the agenda with, with lots of other things, of course, uh, in this presidential election. Is there a, is there a particular uh, a candidate or, or, or things that are out there that really give you concern as we head towards November? Yeah, and I, and I would never dare talk about any specific candidate. <laughs> but, no, um, come on! I thought we were going to talk Trump! <laughs> Yeah, well, he certainly has a ton of momentum going, that's for sure. But, um, you know, I think the biggest thing 
you know, for me, Christian, this is what I pay attention to, frankly, is I, I pay attention to who seems to actually know what they're talking about on the issues, and then I'll know if they're sincere. Um, you know, I do hear a lot of things where people clearly do not understand an issue that they're talking about, you know, whether it be Second Amendment issues all the way up to the land issue. And unfortunately, we have, in my view anyway, we've become a society that is so sensitive nowadays to where we let social media campaigns influence decisions that a lot of times end up being bad decisions. And that, that's what I'm fearful of. I don't want to, to me, a leader is someone that stands up uh, and, and is willing to say, you know, yeah, I realize there's outrage over this, but we're not doing it because, you know, X, Y, and Z, and not be afraid of the fallout from social media and all these crazy things. Because as we saw, for example, with this whole Cecil the Lion debacle last year, um, you know, it was a very vocal minority who, you know, showed all this outrage in social media and created all this noise. And we've done things like take knee-jerk reactions and limit opportunities for people to hunt in Africa, for example, because to some people it just didn't feel good, and now they're going to call 200 uh, African lions in Zimbabwe because they don't have the hunters. And that they're, it's going to cost them money to have to control that population instead of raising millions of dollars for for conservation out there. Um, I don't want a leader that's going to have a knee-jerk reaction. I want a leader that has real convictions about the things that are important to us as outdoors people. And I think if you've been paying attention, you can clearly sort out uh, the people that do care mostly about the things that we're interested in and the ones that, uh, frankly, don't um, don't really know what they're talking about. So that, that would be my advice is just pay very close attention to what you're hearing out there. Gotcha. And, um, you know, I don't know how to... So you're not, wait wait a second. You're not going to give me the NDA uh, presidential endorsement? We don't endorse any candidates. We are uh, we are a five hundred one c four nonprofit in the in the eyes of the IRS, and that just simply means that we can we can lobby and work on particular issues. But we it says very clearly in our bylaws that we won't endorse any particular candidate. Well, geez, I thought you were going to give me something really juicy here today, Nick. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help you. Oh, buddy, I'll let it go. Next time we're hunting together somewhere, though, we can we'll talk around the campfire. <laughs> you'll give me you'll give me your unsolicited personal opinion. That's right. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to look forward to that. Um, you know, one thing that we haven't touched on yet, and I think we ought to before we, uh, you know, head for the exits, is uh, the issue of diseases in deer, because clearly. Uh, couple of things actually probably that and the urine issue let's cover them uh in that order uh not that you you're not excited to talk about urine and maybe you want to jump right to that but we gotta we gotta cover these diseases uh, well, we got a couple things out there okay cwd chronic wasting disease which is a sort of a more of a pandemic i guess than an epidemic and and then you've got ehd which i guess is the the latter more of you know epidemic type outbreaks uh, that can really have massive effects over you know fairly large regional areas in short periods of time and and i'm sure everyone out there who's listening all the way from from the west to the east coast you know somebody knows about some certain areas you know whether it be you know iowa and illinois all the way here 
into Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, I think out into some of the western states and the Dakotas, you know, all the way down into the south. Some of these areas have been racked by EHD over the last five to ten years, and, and it's really set deer populations back in some traditionally excellent deer hunting areas. And then you've got something like CWD, which just seems to continue a slow, steady march throughout the whitetail range, and that sort of uh, carries its own implications. Uh, what's the deal with, with deer diseases, and does it just feel like I'm seeing more about this than ever? Or are there more outbreaks than there used to be, or is it just like everything else in the world, Nick, where everything is instantaneous and we've got social media and Internet news and, and everything travels so fast that we just hear about this more than we used to? Yeah, I think it might be that might be part of it for sure. I mean, I know just this week we learned that Arkansas has now joined the list of states where they have found CWD positive animals. Um, you know, I think the bottom line is we need to know more about these diseases. Um, you know, CWD is not that EHD isn't scary; it absolutely is, and, it, and it's been a big problem. CWD is particularly scary because it's 100% fatal when deer contract it. And they they can spread it amongst each other, and you know we just we need to understand it better. Um, I see a lot of bad information being put out there, and a lot of uh, really good information. And what it becomes is just information everywhere. And I think people have a hard time um, deciding which is true and which isn't true. And I think the the biggest thing we can do is learn more about these diseases, understand where they come from, understand how deer transmit them to each other or, or do they not transmit them to each other and put out the best information we possibly can. What we don't want to do is knee-jerk reaction and um, do things that are going to be bad for deer and deer hunting. Um, but when you have a disease out there that, that is, like I said, 100% fatal and in some areas of the country is having significant impacts on deer herds, local deer herds, I think we owe it to ourselves to put some resources into that issue and understand it and learn it and, and know what we can and can't do to help uh, prevent prevent the spread of it, frankly. Um, I don't know that you ever get rid of something like CWD, but you certainly, I think, can, can do some things to, to help prevent the spread. So we need to learn more, and I hope that's something that the NDA can do, is to be a resource to, to drive more money to research so that we can make good decisions. And then uh, you mentioned the deer urine thing. I know uh, a couple, there are actually three states, I think, have already banned the use of urine-based deer lures and Pennsylvania is considering right now. And I think that's where I say we need to be careful about knee-jerk reactions because, you know, when you you really look at that issue, and I can tell you something, that this is something we are working on, and we've got a a pretty strong group of individuals that, you know, we're working behind the scenes directly on this issue. Um, You know, I think think to just eliminate the – use of urine-based scents without really knowing if there is uh, any chance of spreading CWD through that practice is a knee-jerk reaction that we need to be careful of. Um, number one, a lot of hunters like to use that tool. Number two, there's a very hefty industry behind uh, the use of these, uh, you know, the use of urine-based lures. And number three, uh, the Archery Trade Association actually is working with pretty much all of the main um manufacturers of urine-based scent products to put practices in the place that, uh, to the best they possibly can, ensure that this urine is not coming from CWD-positive deer. So, 
this is where I see industry working together to come up with solutions that give hunters the tools that they want to use that helps the industry be strong and it's and and also make sure it's not a threat to deer. So um, I think we just need to be careful and not overreact to things and, again, not let politics or um, a lack of facts, uh, just because it might feel good, drive us into decisions that might not actually be the, the, the best decision. Well, exactly. And this is where... Um... You know, you talked about the fact that we need to understand more, and we, the reason for that is because we need to avoid making decisions that are just feel-good decisions, but they're really be made in the dark with no full understanding of exactly justifying those decisions in some cases. Um, you know, and I'd like to talk about CWD a little bit more because I'm actually going to give you a bit of a contrarian view on CWD, and you tell me if you think I'm completely off base, okay, Nick? Um, Just take the urine, for example. Now, the state agencies, some of them, you know, the the biologists, say that they, they fear, you know, that CWD could be spread by using those urine products because there could be prions or basically carrying agents for the disease in that urine. But as far as I know, and you tell me if I'm wrong, there's no conclusive evidence to suggest that's the case. Am I right? And, and that's exactly why I say we need, the, we need more science. Um, frankly, I don't know that anybody has studied that specific um, scenario that you had just mentioned. So Therefore, you know, a, a state agency, I think, would argue that, well, we're just taking every step necessary to make sure it's not a problem. Um, but sometimes that also means taking steps that aren't necessary um, uh, as well, and I think that's what we need to be careful of. Um, so, no, I would, I mean, I think you're not incorrect to say that there, there's definitely no definitive science out there that says this is something that we should do. And, and frankly, the minute there would be definitive science, the NDA would be the first one to step up and say, then we need to ban these things because it's a problem. Well, I mean, I, I really want to go on this. I'm, I'm going to kind of, I get on a high horse on CWD because <laughs> yep. I, I, I've got some other points that I want to make, and I'm really interested in what your reaction is to them. Because i got to admit, Nick, you know, I never knew anything about CWD until, oh, I don't know, it's probably, say, 12 years ago now, maybe 13, 14, whatever. But it showed up in New York State at some captive deer facilities around that time. And at that time in my life, I was the outdoor writer at the Morning Call, which is a newspaper in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So CWD had been slowly moving east, but then it showed up you know, not too far across the border. And so it was at the doorstep of Pennsylvania. And at that time, uh, I wrote quite a number of articles about the disease. And uh, unfortunately, as you rightly note, relatively little is known about it today, more so than it was uh, at that time. Uh, But that being as it may, here's what I know about CWD. And, And the thing, as time has gone by, and I've seen this show up in more and more places, I've started to scratch my head and wonder... Uh, back then I was really scared about it and what it was going to mean for our deer and for our hunting heritage. And now I'm less concerned and here's why. And I'm not saying by any means that CWD is good in any way or that I wish for it to be uh, in more areas. But here's what I am saying. Okay, CWD was first identified in Colorado. I believe it was the late 60s or the early 70s. Now how long CWD has actually been prevalent in the environment is anyone's guess. That's just when science first identified the disease, okay? 
Now, Nick, tell me if I'm wrong. There's a lot of deer in Colorado. Mule deer all over the place. Elk, too, which are also susceptible to the disease. And last I checked, elk still has the, or Colorado still has the largest uh, elk population uh, in the United States. Uh, so here I've got a state which was ground zero for CWD and still has a very healthy elk and deer population. And I can buy over-the-counter tags and a lot of units and go out there and hunt elk every year. Now I look at places like Wisconsin where it showed up and they decided that they were going to try and eradicate all the white-tailed deer from an entire uh, disease zone. And they spent years and millions of dollars on that. They never were able to kill all those deer. And uh, last I checked, deer are still living in Wisconsin. They're, uh, you know, still having deer hunting out there. And you get my point. I could go state to state to state. My question is, not just to you, because I realize you're not necessarily the CWD expert, although I'd interested to hear what you know, but to any biologist in the country, can you show me any area, and I do mean any, outside of a captive facility where entire herds have been depopulated because the disease was detected, can you show me any significantly sized area in the wild where deer have been, deer or elk or moose or any servant, has been completely eradicated, wiped out by the disease, no other individuals showed immunity or moved in from the outside and established a a, a reestablished a population. I'm just not aware that it exists. I don't believe, as bad as CWD is, that it has extirpated deer or elk or any other cervid from any area of North America. And that's not to say that it hasn't had a negative impact on the population or severely depressed the population in a concentrated area for a period of time. But I'm not sure that it's the doomsday scenario for deer that some people want to say that it is. Am I completely crazy, or can you hear a little bit of sense in what I'm saying? No, I don't think you're completely crazy at all. I think I actually I just saw a at the at the QDMA convention. Kip Adams from QDMA did a uh, really nice state of the deer report, and he did talk about a, a, a specific population, I believe in Wyoming, where CWD has has been a has been a, a more than a significant impact on a, on a particular local herd. But your question was, has it eradicated a population uh, to where it's disappeared and other deer have not recruited in and so on and so forth? And, and uh, to my knowledge, no, that has not happened. And I think that's when I say we need to learn more about the disease. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to why it hasn't happened. So I want to know, for example, um, will, will deer, for example, is this something that deer can breed out of themselves, potentially? I don't know. I'm not a biologist. Um, but are, are yeah, some well, deer susceptible yeah, and some deer not susceptible? And that's, and that's why I say we just need to be careful and learn more about the disease, because what you're saying, I can understand why sportsmen get upset, you know, because, you know, the Wisconsin example probably being, you know, being the most glaring. Um, if you asked all the state agency people that, that worked on that at the time, if they could do it differently, would they? You probably would get a yes on that. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes part of the learning process, you learn lessons the hard way, and I think that's why we just need to learn more because I want to answer those questions. Yeah. I want to know the definitive answers to those questions and not, not be guessing at them. Yeah, I mean, for all we know, it's been around for a thousand years, and it's come and gone, and we all know how long those prions stay in the soil, you know, and like you said, some deer 
for whatever reason. I know that through the research that has been done, it, it does appear fairly uh, evident that some deer are more resistant to contracting the disease than others. So again, you know, much like any disease that would strike a population of wildlife, it, it could be something that's cyclical and, and natural. And, and again, I'm not I'm not trying to be a CWD apologist and say that it's good. You know, we certainly don't want it uh, or, or more of it. But I'm just I'm just not as convinced as I was back when I first learned about it, when it really, really scared me as a couple, you know, decades have gone by and we've learned a little bit more and we've just seen that it doesn't appear to be, you know, like a nuclear bomb upon us, you know, that we may, we may find over the course of time, this is something that we're going to manage and deal with just like we do a whole host of other, you know, diseases that strike wildlife. Yeah. And I think that's, that's not an irresponsible way to look at it. I mean, I think we should be concerned, absolutely. And like you said, you are concerned. Um, maybe not losing sleep over it, but you're concerned. And I, and I think we need to be concerned, and I think we need to learn more, um, you know, so that we can, we can say more definitive things about it, absolutely. Um, and, and that's what we need to do. And that's, you know, I hate, I hate that it almost seems like a cop-out to keep saying we need more research, we need more, we need more research. But that really is the reality of it. And you can, you know, all the different circles out there in the deer world, and depending on what conversation you wander into, you're going to get different opinions and thoughts on, on what's going on out there with that disease. And, um, you know, we, we just, we, we need to make sure that we're doing the right thing on behalf of deer and deer hunters. And, um, you know, that's, that's where the research comes in. And that's where, uh, really knowing, knowing what we're talking about, with the help of that good science, will will take us much further than politics or uh, knee-jerk reactions and these types of things. So that's where we need to get to. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and I just think about practical matters, too. You look at things like the proposed urine bans or the transport bans that are in place. You know, here, uh, depending on what state you travel to, you know, you can or can't bring certain parts of your deer back because of the concerns about CWD, and yet as the disease seems to be found in more and more places all the time, what's going to happen to those regulations when CWD is present, you know, in wild deer populations in every state that has deer? You're going to keep those in place so we can't have it more? You know, it's like, at what point does all that become sort of meaningless? You know, it's like, well, we already have, you know, deer throughout Pennsylvania that are testing positive for CWD. You're still not going to let a guy use a bottle of tanks? Uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff I think about just as a deer hunter. I guess that's why I'm not a biologist or a deer manager. No, but I, I think it makes that's what makes you good at what you do, right? If you're passionate about it, you care about it. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing. And I, and I would say, too, I don't, I don't think any deer manager, deer biologist that I've ever met or, or worked with, anything that they do, I don't think they would ever purposely try to do and it, that would it hurt deer or impact deer negatively. And sometimes, like I said, we learn lessons after the fact. And, um, you know, I think that's just part of the learning process. And, and um, you know, I think everybody has their heart in the right place, but it's just so difficult when you don't know you know, what is the roadmap to follow and what should we be doing? So we're, we're learning with this. We know more now than we ever did, but we've got tons more to learn. And I'm hopeful that, um, you know, before I retire, that we have a much better understanding and handle on, on what we're dealing with here. 
Well, I appreciate you going down the CWD rabbit trail with me, Nick. We, uh, we burned a little bit of time on that, and we probably ought to wrap her up. But before I let you go, um, I know that uh, you probably would like to share with our listeners uh, on how they can get involved with the National Deer Alliance, learn more about your organization. Uh, you know, do you have any special for me today? You know, if, can I get $20 off a membership fee for my listeners or something like that? I can actually do better than that. So membership to the NDA is free. And all I, you set, have to, I set you up for that one, pal. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, just go to nationaldeeralliance.com, and you'll see at the very top of the page it says join, uh, join us now or something to that effect. You just click there, give us your email address, and you will get our weekly newsletter every single week, and you'll get a chance to participate in some of our polling and be informed of issues going on in your area. And also when you, when you provide your address or your zip code, That'll ensure that whenever we have a specific issue in your area that you can participate in, that you'll get notified. So um, that is a, a free thing to do. Like I said, we, we work very closely. I should have said this at the outset. With This isn't just whitetails. You know, we work with mule deer, whitetails, coos deer, blacktails. Um, we work with uh, our three key partner organizations, the Mule Deer Foundation, the Quality Deer Management Association, and Whitetails Unlimited. If you're going to spend money on a membership, we want you to spend the money with them. They're conservation organizations. They do great work. We're simply serving as the policy umbrella to work on some of these big-picture issues. Uh, that's why we don't want any money for your membership. Join us for free, then go ahead and give your, your 25 or 35 bucks to those other groups and become a paying member there. And uh, the, the deer will thank you, and so will those organizations. They might thank me, but they don't usually thank me enough, as, enough to just come strolling right under the tree, you know? Right. I think you got to get one of those lifetime platinum memberships for that or something. I, I can't right. afford it. Well, Nick, I tell you what, it was great catching up with you today, man. It's always good to talk whitetails, and it's always good to share uh, an hour or so with a, a fellow passionate uh, bow hunter like yourself. So, again, uh, congratulations on the gig. Uh, I know that uh, the National Deer Alliance is going to do tremendous things, being an advocate for the resource and for those of us who uh, have a passion for deer and pursuing them in the field. And uh, uh, as I said at the outset, I am glad that uh, you are our advocate. Thank you very much. I appreciate that and, and really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners today. Well, God bless you and good luck on all your hunts in 2016. All right, buddy? All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new ultra micro diameter injection arrows. For more information, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.